0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham omnibus sport review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Roy Hodgson and Harry Redknapp and their life and times. And I suppose the best prism for really for discussing their life and times is really the idea of there being a, a British dream. We all know about the American dream and how important that is, but there isn't really an equivalent British dream. And I suppose the principle behind that is that if there was a British dream, it wasn't, it wouldn't be created, it wouldn't be imagined to create a country and a people. It would be, at its heart, self-justificatory. The idea is you already have Britain. You already have a long history. And really what you're trying to do is almost to put some form of... Some form and concept of what Britishness is and what it means. The thing is, is that it's not actually... You know Britishness when you see it. The idea that's not cricket. It's There's a, an understanding of fairness. A sense of fair play. The idea there's the, the rights of an Englishman. But it's not particularly... It's not particularly well defined. It's almost better defined by what it's not. So it's not French, it's not American, it's not European. It's it's almost a way of explaining and then maintaining the pre-existing social structure. You know, there's a sense whenever you discuss you know the French Revolution in this country. You know, in terms of you know when I studied at a university, it always brings up the fact that one of the sort of underlying factors was is that there was a a huge sort of distance between the French aristocracy and the peasants they didn't really intersect very often the idea is that in Britain the aristocracy played cricket with their peasants with the with the lower orders there was some form of you know social contract between them that allowed that kind of mixing and togetherness that didn't exist in France and that because it didn't exist that didn't exist in France that helped foment that kind of the revolution and there's an element of of truth to that but the point was the english gentry didn't play you know, cricket with their you know the lower orders because they were trying to create a social contract. It was just something that happened. It was exploitative in its sense that you take, you know, you have the aristocracy providing the you know, equipment and the grounds and the space. And, you know, a lot of the time with sort of early cricket, you were dealing with large amounts of money. In other words, my 11 will beat your 11 and I'll put X amount of guineas on that. You know, so there's gambling, there's, there's exploitation, there's a sense of you know, machismo in it. It is not necessarily you know in other words, you might hire some cricketers to work on your estate because you want the best team. It's not because you're necessarily looking out for those people's best interest. You know, then the problem you then look at with, you know, sort of cricket's class issues. You know, the idea of the gentleman versus the players. In other words, the gentleman plays particularly aesthetically you know correct cricket, you know textbook correct cricket that doesn't necessarily score huge amounts of runs whereby your you know, your player who is actually doing this professionally will score agricultural runs. they'll hit the ball hard and far. It won't necessarily look great in terms of the textbook, but it will get runs, and that's what that the player is. So in other words, the players, the professionals will you know get changed in this changing room, the gentleman. Who are doing this not for the money, but for, you know, pride, for class, they will do they will have to get changed somewhere else, and never the Twain shall meet. And that was still going on in in the nineteen sixties. If you take, let's say, the nineteen twenty-three FA Cup final as a sort of classic example, you know, yeah, it's played at Wembley, it's the first Cup final at Wembley, and the idea is is that you know, the capacity is somewhere in the vicinity of, a sort of 100,000, maybe 120,000. And 200,000 people turn up on the day, overwhelm whatever kind of, kind of turnstile system is there, and everyone just bundles into the ground. So naturally, you imagine that not all 200,000 of those people paid a mission price. At some point, they just scaled over the fence. That was it. And usually you would look at that as necessarily not being any great example of you know social cohesion. It's a bit chaotic. It's absolutely on the potentiality of there being a huge disaster as a result of 80,000, possibly even 100,000 extra people in this ground who shouldn't be there in the first place. But it's been created almost like a myth. And what it is, is it's recast as a... A triumph of manners and common sense of the crowd. Yes, there were 200,000 people, maybe 100,000 of them hadn't paid, but they were going to make sure this game was going to be played. Nobody was going to get hurt. All you need is one you know, pr- British police officer on a white horse who will then clear the crowd from, from the playing surface, and the game will, ca- will, will go on you know, without there being a huge amount of time lost. It, you know, the game didn't wasn't delayed by several hours and the point was is that the crowd were was self-policing because of the presence of the king was there and nobody wanted to embarrass themselves in front of the king and there's absolutely no evidence to prove that was the case but the idea is is that the hierarchy is the is the positive in this. Yes, there may have been some scoundrels that scaled over the fence and didn't pay, but once you sat there and put them in the same stadium as the king, immediately everyone's better angels took over. And it all it took was one police officer, whereby if this was recast in France or Italy, it would be seen as the the passionate locals, you know, endangering themselves and it being a complete, you know, Complete luck that it didn't turn into a major catastrophic disaster where, you know, people were crushed or people were killed or there was a riot. And it's important then to really sort of compare, I suppose, with the American dream. Compare and contrast. Is that the American dream is in many ways an, an enshrined political doctrine. The idea of you know life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And... There are many different ways it it is kind of ameliorated. You have it as a literary device, the idea of someone writing the great American novel. You know, it has an empirical ideology to it. In that was you know, cast in terms of manifest destiny, which has you know strong racial undertones to it. You have the sense that the American dream was necessary. If you were going to sort of foment revolution, if you were going to you know get people to rise up. And cast out the you know the British, you would need something larger. You were going to for the first time that you were going to have a revolution where the idea was is that happiness. You know, where it wasn't just that you were doing this for the king, you weren't doing this, you know, for the for you know what would become nationalism. You were doing this for your own potentiality to thrive. And that you would need something like um, the American Dream to basically conquer the sort of vast ge- geographical difference of the place. You have swamps, you have desert, you have mountains, you have snow. You know, sea to shining sea. There is a huge amount of land and huge differences. And the people that settled the United States were you know, disparate. You have you know Native Americans, you have immigrants, you had the you know the the pilgrims its so much differentiation and you would then have to almost try and turn that into a united country and a united people so that there are political aims but it also has just as much agency uh, as a, a personal ethos you know one of my favorite you know quotes about the the concept of the american dream is from you know ron swanson a fictional character from parks and recreations and he says the whole point of this country is that if you want to eat garbage balloon up to 600 pounds and die of a heart attack at 43 you can you are free to do so that to me is beautiful you know you can give that a libertarian you can have, it can be a, a personal interpretation that's very strongly subjective. You, you can call it, you know, the land of opportunity, the land of immigrants. You, there are people that see the American dream in incredibly racist terms, which I think is utterly wrong. But that's, you know, what some Americans and some people view it as. But the thing is, is that the American dream isn't about a sense of fair play. Or of minimum ex- expectation. It's not a situation where if you come to America, you will at least have XYZ provided. You know, it will give you a a minimum. There is no such thing. Most of the people, that immigrants that come to America, do not make a huge amount of money. If, even if you go back historically, the people that settled the plains, most of them failed. Most of it was just abject poverty grim survival at best you know the gold rush only a handful of people made any money the majority of people that turned up there went home empty handed you know there were people that lost their lives there were people whose lives were ruined very few people benefited you know the people that benefited were the people that owned shops that sold you know equipment to the you know the gold rush the people that came you know there were some companies, there were railroads that made money, but only a, a tiny handful of gold prospectors made any kind of money from it. But it's that opportunity that you can do so, which is completely different, I suppose, to the British idea of it. I mean, I always reference sort of Al Murray, the pub landlord. It's a um, a comedian who created this character, and he sort of goes on a long sort of statement about the American dream. And he says that Britain doesn't have an American dream because we're awake. That's the sort of punchline to it. And so if you were going to have, how does Harry Redknapp and Roy Hodgson, how do they exemplify elements of the British dream? And I suppose they've achieved success at the highest level of their professions. And they're both self-made men. They've risen from the bottom to the top. They both come from humble beginnings. Roy Hodgson's dad is a bus driver from Croydon. Harry Redknapp's father was a docker in the East End. And in some ways, this British—they're both examples of the British sporting dream. They—they both have fathers that are shoe working men, sort of the earth. And on a Saturday, they take their sons to the football. And that they give them... And the sort of huge role they played in growing their love and appreciation for the game. And both of their sons grow up wanting to be professional footballers. Harry Renner becomes a professional footballer, Roy Hodgson falls short. At best, he's a kind of mediocre semi-pro, you know, going around the lower, the lower leagues. And now both of them are, have been successful football managers. And yet, it's fascinating to look at the fact that for, in both of their careers, there's been such a huge importance to the idea of giving back, of serving the local community, you know, honouring your heritage, you know Harry Redknapp grew up in the East End played for West Ham managed West Ham you know, Roy Hodgson you know grew up in Surrey in Croydon went to Crystal Palace you know with his father every week played in the youth team and now he's the manager of Crystal Palace and both of them wanted to be you know England manager you know that was the pinnacle of their career you know there was a need to represent there was a sense of giving back. Of, and both of them loved the idea of being the pride of the area. I think it's, it gives huge pride to Roy Hodgson to know that he's a local boy managing his local club. And I think Redknapp had the same feeling at West Ham. And there's an aspirational sort of quality. If you take you know, Harry Redknapp's formative experience. When he was a kid, he, after school finished, he would go to his grandmother's for, for dinner. And there was a few times where he'd arrive at the house and his grandmother was being led into a black maria. It's a slang for a police car by the police. She'd been arrested for um, basically bookmaking, which was illegal. And she'd basically say to Harry, look, dinner's on the table. I'll be a couple of hours. Don't worry about it. And this was kind of a recurring thing is that basically all the people on the street would basically would gamble illegally on the horses. She would take the bets and the paper boy, who was apparently a sixty-year-old man, would come round and would collect all the bets and eventually was the bookie. And yet now Harry Renner owns several horses Several race horses. And, you know, is in the owner's enclosure. And And it comes down to the the sense of the local boy made good the the tea boy the barrow boy and with those two concepts is and they're pretty much one and the same thing but the idea of the tea boy is a sort of generational thing the idea is that you would always have the the lowest rung would be the youngest kid in the office and they would be the tea boy they would be the one that would be the bit of the gopher who would make the tea for everybody else And there were several sort of businessmen who would start at the bottom and they would be able to work their way up to the absolute top, you know, running the company, owning the company. And with the Barrow Boy, it's a slightly more sort of working class touch to it, is that you'd be in the market with your Barrow, you know, building your own little business, and then that business would sort of go supernova. And so that's what a Barrow Boy is. That's, you know, the T-boy, the local boy made good. And both Hodgson and Redknapp are kind of classic examples of that. You know, if you take Harry Redknapp's, you know, the, the with his grandmother, is that it was almost, yes, it was a crime, but it was a communal crime. It was as a result of social deprivation. It was the, the need for an outlet. You know, we, we as English people, we lionise that you know the sense of everyone knew everybody else everyone was in the same boat there wasn't a huge amount of money going around and yet that culture and that community has just dissipated and it dissipated very rapidly you know in the sense especially in the sort of london area after the end of the, the second world war where you had all of these houses that had been destroyed all these tenements and a huge concentration of people in very a small amount of space, and simply you couldn't really rebuild those houses and have you know fifteen people to a house. And so people moved out to the suburbs, and you very much you know, have you know, and instead of huge rows of terraced housing, you had detached house, semi-detached houses, and which didn't breed the same kind of community that you that Harry up grew up in the East End, or even to a lesser extent, you know, Roy Hodgson in. In Croydon. And, you know, up said in a few interviews, you know, what it's like sort of imagining that his grandmother could see him now in the owner's enclosure, owning horses, not just taking bets or you know, looking at the paper in the evening, you know, picking out horses for her. And what it comes down to is that <clears throat> one of these young boys you know who grew up loving both of these boys who grew up loving football one becomes England manager in 2012 and the other doesn't and I think for me what fascinates it is that there are reasons behind it and so much of it is really cultural and it starts with the idea of the the 11 plus exam so effectively beginning in 1944 there was... Every 11-year-old in school would have would sit the 11-plus exam. And that would be basically the, the deciding moment. So you would basically ended primary school and you were now moving up to, to secondary school. And you're, depending on how well you did the 11-plus, there was two options. You would either go to what was a secondary modern and what was later then described as a comprehensive school, or you would go to the grammar school. Now, the grammar school is selective and in some cases fee paying, the secondary, modern, the comprehensive is not selective and no fees attached. And what that was is. It was the fork in the road. If you went into a grammar school, you know, there was social standing. It was a gateway. It was a pathway to higher education, to university. It was the sense that you went to a better school. You had a better quality of education, whereby if you went to the secondary, modern, the local comprehensive, it was literally almost the concept that you were going to the local comp down the road. And for sort of generation, post-war generations, the idea was you went to the if you didn't if you didn't super succeed in the 11 plus, you went to the local comp down the road at 15, 16, you left and you went straight into the workforce whereby, if you went to the grammar school and you were successful, doors would open for you. There would be a social standing to it. So Harry Wrennapp goes to you know, Sir Humphrey Gilbert's school in Stepney, and it is a comprehensive, it's a secondary modern, and he plays for East London schools, and he leaves school at 16 to become an apprentice at West Ham United, and then becomes a professional football player. Hodgson sits the 11-plus And he basically passes. And he goes to the John Ruskin grammar school in South Croydon. And he goes to school with Steve Kemba, Lenny Lawrence and Bob Houghton. And all four of them become top flight managers. All become successful football managers. And that gives him a career break. So... ...by going to school with Bob Houghton... ...by being friends with Bob Houghton... ...that gives him his managerial career break in Sweden. So originally Roy Hodgson plays... ...you know, semi-pro levels... ...you know, Gravesend... ...you know... ...never going to make the top flight... ...he's never going to play in the football league... ...it's the equivalency of basically being stuck... ...in independent ball and baseball... ...and... is ...he decides that he's going to get into teaching... ...does his qualifications... And he teaches P at Allian's Grammar School, all while doing his coaching badges on the you know, and playing a bit of semi pro football at the weekends. And from that all these opportunities open up for Roy Hodgson in a way they don't for Harry Redknapp. You know basically Harry Redknapp has said in in interviews that you know the school he went to was was a nut house and you know the friends he made at school you know was Tony the taxi driver who lives in Badet Road and Johnny who lives in Globe Road in Stepney. And I suppose that's where things start to sort the of differentiate is that Roy Hodgson, you know, has I suppose the confidence to go out and start coaching in Sweden. So his friend goes out there, has starts having some success and basically gives, you know, recommends Roy for a managerial job out in Sweden. So from going from playing, you know, being nowhere close to being involved in professional football. Really, his option was to carry on playing you know, semi-pro football, maybe possibly get a job in some of the lowest rungs of English football. But instead, he gets this you know, opportunity to go to Sweden and manage in the top level there. And remember, this is Sweden who'd got through to the 1958 World Cup final when Sweden hosted the tournament and lost to Brazil and Pele. Whereby you can imagine Harry Redknapp had he at, you know the Humphrey Gilbert School gone up to one of his teachers and said, Actually I fancy managing in Sweden, he'd have probably got you know, smacked around the back of the head for, you know, insolence. The idea that you were going to basically go from, you know, the East End and somehow manage in Sweden would have just been ridiculous your know, His hope best hopes were, if you make it at West Ham, being a professional footballer. If not, you were going to possibly work in the docks, work in a factory, you know, work in the market. And it's completely different worlds, I guess. You know, Harry up has a relatively successful career. He's at West Ham. He then goes to Bournemouth. And just as his career is kind of winding down, takes the opportunity to go play in America. And that's where he kind of starts his coaching career whereby with Roy Hodgson his you know football career kind of basically peter's out he does spend a little bit of time playing in South Africa in 73 74 um in apartheid South Africa while taking a, basically a leave of absence from his job day job as a PE teacher for a you know grammar school and the difference is that from starting to manage in Sweden opens just huge amounts of doors. Both Bob Houghton has huge amounts of success with Malmo, while Roy Hodgson starts at Halmstead. He carries on and eventually you know, wins several league titles. And from there, you know, Hodgson's career just goes on the up and up. You know, Bob Houghton goes back to managing Bristol City at the time. They were in you know the top division, what we would now call the Premier League. And Roy Hodgson is his assistant. And it's an interesting story, essentially... You know, Bristol's a a big city uh, in the southwest, and there's huge opportunity that they 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 could probably, as a city, have a Premier League team. I think it's big enough as a place. The potentiality is there, and at the time in the early eighties, they they think that Bristol City are going to be in the Premier League in the top division for an extended period of time. They give out some big contracts and things start to go wrong, attendance drops, and suddenly, Bristol City are absolutely overwhelmed. They are basically going close to the wall, Bob Houghton leaves, and Roy Hodgson is now the manager. And it's a case where the club basically goes up to several of the players who sign these long-term deals, we're talking five, six, seven-year deals, and saying, look, if you don't rip up these contracts, we're going to go to the wall. So basically giving up their you know livelihood, all of this guaranteed money, and the six players do that which saves the club and they're immortalized in a um, there's a few plaques on the stadium at Ashton Gate to say we wouldn't be here but for these six players and Bristol City start to slide down the divisions and Roy Hodgson leaves has to go back to map has to go back to Sweden and then has his great kind of moment both Hamilton and Hodgson basically swap the league title year after year you know Houghton takes Malmö all the way to the European Cup final, where they lose to Brian Clough's Nottingham Forest. And from there, you know, Hodgson goes to manage in Switzerland for a while, has some success there. And from the success he has in European football for his Swiss team, he gets given the job as the Swiss national team manager. Does that job, does pretty well, takes him to the World Cup for the first time in basically a generation in 1994 qualifies them for Euro 96 in England, and then he gets given the Inter Milan job. And you can imagine literally going from being a PE teacher who plays a bit of semi-pro at the weekend to being manager of Inter Milan in literally the space of you're looking at really uh, 15, 20 years. And that's with no... You know, n- yeah you There was no... He didn't have, it's not like his family had been involved in the game. There was no sort of nepotism in that regard. There was, you know, all he had was his school friends and look at all the doors that opened. And, you know, he now speaks five or six different languages, has managed all over the world. Yeah, international and at club level and then you compare that with sort of Harry Redknapp who's in the North American Soccer League and he's just at the end of it when the, the league is close to basically going bankrupt and it's not the highest level and so he's you know a player coach for a while and then he gets his sort of first break in management when Bobby Moore the England captain who lifted the World Cup in 66 gets given a job and Bobby Moore calls up Harry Redknapp and says I want you to be my assistant at Oxford Immediately, Harry's eyes light up. He thinks it's fantastic. This is Oxford United, a football league team. You know, it's a big place. You've got the university. There's enough possibilities that you could get this club up to you know, the top division. And it's great. You're in the football league. It's a start. And then Bobby Moore has said, no, it's not Oxford United, it's Oxford City, who are the absolute afterthought. You know, the second team that basically people, often people don't realise there isn't Oxford City. It's in the Isthmian League, it's in the absolute doldrums. And, yeah, he takes the job, but there's not a huge amount of opportunity open from that. It doesn't go particularly well, and, you know, Bobby Moore leaves, Harry Redknapp leaves, and then he has to basically then wait a while and gets a second opportunity to be an assistant manager at Bournemouth, where he played. And again, this is still a low-level football league outfit. It's just an assistant manager's role. You know, he doesn't even. You know, when the original manager leaves, he doesn't get given the job. Somebody else, and then finally he gets given the job. And you know, Bournemouth for a small club, you know, not a huge, not a great history. And so he has to kind of you know work some miracles there. They beat you know Manchester United in nineteen eighty five FA Cup in the third round. It's a huge shock. You know Man United won the FA Cup in you know, the year before, and even then that's you know you're having to fight and claw. You don't have a huge amount of money. You know then it's Bournemouth isn't the biggest place. It's not the biggest stadium in the world. You know the it's not. You know he gets them promoted. And keeps them up for a few years in the second division, which is now the championship, and eventually they get relegated, and his and he's at a crossroads. Gets given the assistant manager job at West Ham. Now, whenever you're talking about West Ham and opportunities for management, it's there's always I I'll use the Abraham Lincoln quote, there there's too many pigs for the tits. There's so many West Ham, ex-West Ham players and West Ham legends that desperately want to be West Ham manager. And there just isn't enough West Ham manager jobs available. And so he's the assistant manager and effectively, in some respects, has to be a little bit with one of his former teammates, Billy Bonds, who's a club legend, played sort of 600 plus games for them. And eventually, Harry Redknapp is essentially replaces him as manager and as a result, their friendship is just completely ended there and then. And there's a sense of, he has, because you've gone from, although you've had the, the benefit of a professional career, it wasn't the greatest professional career. He never played for England in that regards. Only played at West Ham for a few years and then dropped down a level to Bournemouth and then dropped down again to being a role player in the NASL in America, and the West Ham job is a difficult job, they, at that time there wasn't a huge amount of money, you know, they were often fighting relegation, they'd only just been sort of re-promoted, and he gets them promoted back into the Premier League, and there's a few years where, you know, they're close to relegation, and eventually, you know, he starts getting the team to play some good football, but there's always an element of wheeler-dealer about him. And it's an interesting concept, is that you have in British culture the... There's probably two TV shows that I think best exemplify it, is you have Only Fools and Horses and Minder, whereas the idea is that you have the East End, and you have these kind of lovable rogue businessmen who are always ducking and diving, and just, just about probably on the wrong side of legality, who are trying to make money in the East End and it, in a tough kind of situation. And, you know, they get by on their wits. And you have Del Boy. And you can definitely, you can watch, you can find it on YouTube and you'll see what I mean. And Harry Renup has that sort of quality about him. But the problem is, is that as as much as that has created, given him a public persona, it's also something that has been used as a stick to beat him with. The idea is that you know, he's kind of, he's a bit of a white boy, that he's a bit of a wise guy. And so there was a classic example where it's a post-match interview, and one of the, the journalists said, oh, meant just references, you know, not in a negative way that he's known as a wheeler dealer. And Harry Randolph just goes ballistic at him, saying, effectively almost saying, are you in sort of importuning my reputation and basically calling me a bit of a shyster? And yet, if you look at his autobiography, he mentions the term wheeler dealer sort of repeatedly, almost at the beginning of the book. And so it's an interesting concept. You've got the element of his self image has benefited from having that kind of wheeler dealer that and having the skills that because he really has risen from, you know, Oxford City and Bournemouth all the way to you know the Premier League to becoming, you know, Tottenham manager taking Bournemouth sorry taking Portsmouth into the Premier League. You know he he's been in a you know Champions League quarter final at the Bernabéu. You know he's won games at the San Siro in the Champions League in the knockout stages. You know he is a high profile you know, media figure. He's been on I'm a celebrity. He's won that. You know he's done Nintendo Wii adverts. He's been a pundit. He has you know he's had a regular you know, newspaper column in the Sun. He's now on Sky Sports on Soccer Saturday. You know, he's... He's done various TV shows, Harry's Heroes, where he's got ex-pros and trained them up and got them to play against German ex-pros. And it's it's quite an interesting programme to watch. He did a TV show about Sandbanks, where he lives. And I suppose it's fascinating in the sense that and we sort of touched on earlier that, you know, he owns racehorses. And the thing is, is that while he lives in Sandbanks, which is a part of Dorset on the coast, that is one of the most high-end places in the world to live, real estate in Sandbanks is more costly than it is in Manhattan. And yet, despite the money that he's made and the high, high profile in media he's still seen as one of us. In other words, when he won I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, the reality TV show, most of the people that actually watch that show aren't hardcore football fans and would not would have vaguely known that he was something to do with football but not known him, and yet his stories and the way how he projects himself, people loved him and that's why he, he won the TV show. And that's the interesting thing, is that in some ways has it held him back professionally definitely with him not getting the england managers job and yet at the same time he still managed to get the spurs job He's still you know been at the t- high end of premier league football for an extended period of time he had a you know a 30 year plus career in in management but again if you compare it to roy hodgson Doors open for Roy Hodgson a lot easier than they do Harry Redknapp. You know when he does the Inter Milan job, you know he then decides to leave for Blackburn a couple of years after they won the Premier League. When the Blackburn job doesn't work out, he goes back to Inter as a director of football. Does is for a short period of time a caretaker manager, and he goes on to manage the in. Norway, he manages in Denmark, he manages the Finnish national team, manages out in the far in the Middle East for a little bit for the, one of the national teams. You know, gets given the Fulham job, gets given the West Brom job, gets the Liverpool job, Palace, and gets given the England job. He didn't even really apply for the England job, it just basically someone gets set, you know, his the chief executive or the technical director of the FA effectively who'd been his boss at West Brom calls him up and says well we'd like to give you the job and he readily accepts whereby Redknapp, who had just taken Spurs into the Champions League who'd had a relatively successful time at Spurs you know he'd taken on that job when Spurs had two points from eight games under Wendy Ramos and were in a state There was a potentiality that they could be in a relegation battle. Takes them to eighth, gets into the cup final, loses on penalty, League Cup final, loses on penalties to Manchester United. Takes Tottenham into Champions League for the first time ever. Gets them into the quarter finals, gets them to finish in the top four on a regular basis, play some fantastic football you know even at west ham when he takes them to fifth with you know a lot of great young players from the youth system joe cole frank lampard rio Ferdinand, he gets sacked because he falls out with the west ham owner that doesn't lead him on to getting a bigger job he ends up having to take a step down into you know unfashionable portsmouth who play in you know relatively you know undeveloped ground where there's not even a roof on one of the ends you know, spend some money gets them promoted. Get keeps them into the, you know the Premier League, and that's. And I think whenever you're dealing with Harry Redknapp, there's always the he's always in the shadow of Terry Venables. Terry Venables, again, grew up in the East End and in in Essex. Moved out to Essex a little bit in his early sort of childhood. And. Venables, you know, again, a fantastic young footballer just like Harry Redknapp. And Venables eventually goes to Chelsea, has a you know good early career there, wins a couple of England caps, gets a move to Spurs. And in some ways, Harry Redknapp is intrinsically interlinked with West Ham and to an extent Bournemouth, but to the East End. He's seen as a, the classic example of, a, of an East Ender. And yet, and that has limitations. There's a sort of push-pull relationship with that. Is that it's given him the skills and the ability to, to become West Ham manager, which is his stepping stone to where he ends up at Spurs and you know in the Champions League. But also the pull element is is that you know the reputation that he had as a wheeler dealer, and there was a court case regarding you know. Tax evasion that he was found not guilty in just before Capello left the England job. Is that Venables, by playing for Chelsea in the 60s, the swinging 60s, when Carnaby Street, when you had the Rolling Stones, when you had the Beatles and Chelsea were playing good football and Tommy Doherty got through to a cup final. And going to Spurs, who'd been really one of the teams of the decade under Bill Nicholson. You had the double in 61, they'd won in Europe. And as a result, because he was quite a good football player, because he was easy on the eyes, he'd stepped away from the East End. He was a little bit more polished than Harry Redknapp. And so when he gets into his managerial career, he doesn't have to go to Oxford City. He doesn't have to coach out in America. You know, he starts out at Crystal Palace, one of the clubs he played for at the back end of his career. You know, Does work relatively well there. Jumps off to QPR. Does a fantastic job at QPR. Takes them into the Cup final. Takes them into the Division 1. And then he gets the, the Barcelona job. I mean, it's, you can't imagine it now. Someone going from you know, QPR... And losing in a cup final to Barcelona, wins the league title for the first time in you know kind of a generation. Tech. gets them all the way through to the you know, European Cup final against Alba Bucharest, loses it on a penalty shootout. But and you know there's much you know and there's a element of the Wheeler Dealer a little bit of the why boy about Terry Venables and his business context. But the point is, Harry Terry Venables gets the England manager's job. In 1994, and effectively, he gets the job because Graham Taylor had had a disaster England hadn't qualified for the World Cup in 1994 in the United States. And England in 1996 were hosting the European Championship, they desperately needed a result. And the FA, because Venables is considered a bit more tactical, whereby Harry Redknapp is considered more of a sort of motivator a man-manager, whereby Venables is more tactical. The, even despite, you know, the all of the background, you know, literally at Spurs, he'd been in a situation with being chief executive, he'd fallen out of Alan Sugar, and it had just gone all through the High Court for an extended period of time. And there was you know talk that, you know, some of the testimony he gave might not have been accurate. There was just all of these rumours, all of this negativity. But the FA in spite of their not wanting to give him the job he's the best man for the job at this point and they give it to him and menables takes England all the way to the euro 96 semi-finals lose on the penalty shootout to germany but the point is when capello leaves the england manager's job it's not quite so much of a crisis yes they need a manager and at the time you had you know a lot of journalists some of the players wanted Harry Redknapp. Well, a lot of the you know football fans wanted Harry Redknapp, and Harry Redknapp desperately wanted this job. Instead of the FA deciding to go to Daniel Levy and trying to negotiate it, they you know, effectively say they don't have the money or even the will to do so. So instead, they give it to Uncle Roy, who was just literally doing a decent enough job at West Brom. You know, he'd kept them up. Taking them to mid table, whereby you'd had Harry, who you know Spurs were playing some fantastic football, had been in the Champions League, you know, went, you know on the verge of competing, you know in the title race, and he's not given the job. Now you could make an argument that you know, Harry has deliberately courted members of the the press, and there are probably maybe half a dozen. Journalists out there who are very much in the pro Harry Redknapp camp, but I think there was a consensus in two thousand twelve that more people than not wanted him to get the job, but but all of this support didn't help him get the job, and I think there was, I think the opportunity that he had, I put this way, the FA had Harry Redknapp resigned. From the Spurs manager job said, look, all I've ever wanted to be is the England manager, this is my one golden opportunity, and I've quit the job, I'm free, you can literally hire me tomorrow. I think there would have been such an overwhelming public reaction towards that, that the you know the person that who's favourite for the job is now available, you don't have to go to Daniel Levy and try and negotiate, whereby the FA would have almost certainly lost and had to pay huge amounts, millions and millions of pounds to get Harry Redknapp, if he then become available instantaneously, it's a fate accompli. But once you, because Harry didn't make that step, because he wasn't willing to put his, you know, the potentialities, what if he resigned and they still didn't give him the job? I, I think there's, almost, there's an element of wanting to you know, effectively to have the FA ask for him. The FA pay that money to release him, to get him to get the job. I think that would have been the sort of the cherry on top, the icing on the cake. And the unfortunate thing was, is that the FA were never going to do that for Harry reddap They never had that level of trust or desire within the organisation. I mean, the FA are very much the, you know, white, male and pale. They're the the blazer brigade. They are... And especially at that period of time, I think the are on the process of changing, but in 2012, they certainly weren't in that place. And they were never going to go out when they could just get Uncle Roy for a couple of hundred grand from West Brom. You know, the idea with Uncle Roy is that you have the element that he speaks five languages, that he's you know, had all of this experience you know, managing at international level, and also managing on the continent, you know, he'd had been. He's a, he was a relatively big name, and there was an air of sophistication. He's quite learned. He speaks five or six different languages. But he's also the point is, is that he's, you know, he would be very much at 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 home. You know, t- talking with the Blazers, he would be the Blazers' choice. You know, he was trained under the you know, FA's auspices. You know, he was the ideal personification of what they wanted an england manager to look at someone who would give them the the figurehead and also the sense that it wasn't just the traditional england manager that this is someone who's actually got experience and who's has a more continental outlook but it's very much a thin facade of continentalism you know most of his success was in you know sort of sweden and Denmark and to a lesser extent sort of Norway which is relative backwaters it is not the the upper end it's not France it's not Spain it's not Italy it's not Germany and I think if you look at his international management career it was very much sort of establishing English qualities to upskill underperforming nations so you know Switzerland you know Finland you know Hodgson and Bob Houghton in going to Sweden. I think there's an element that I don't imagine Uncle Roy learnt a huge amount by going there. I think what he did really, in the same, in a different sense, was he was teaching the Swedes modern football. He was getting less wedded to you know German and other you know, other continental nations. So instead of having a you know, quite spread out players, having a you know, sweeper at the back, and a librero, it was very much moving towards more defensive organisation, pressing. And that's what I mean by sort of thin facade of continentalism. It's different if you were to have an English coach that goes out there and learns from the Italians, learns from the Germans, learns from the Spanish and then brings that back. Which I think you can say, you know, Terry Venables learned from coaching some of the the great players that he did at Barcelona, and brought that into managing the England national team and Spurs when he took them third in and winning the FA Cup in ninety one. I don't think Hodgson quite did the same thing. I think it's very much the the skills that he learnt from the FA in terms of, and the. Uncle Roy's coaching career is an example of a sort of a brief period in the late 60s, early seventies of sort of English football enlightenment. That the the whereby you'd had Charles Hughes and his methodology of coaching was very much long ball. And there was a logic behind it. The idea was that he was sitting up in a stand with a notebook watching football and essentially his you know deductions were pretty much that a lot of goals were scored with sort of three or four passes. And th- there's a, a truism to that. But at the same time, that wasn't the be-all and end-all. So in other words, you had lots of long balls up to big number nines flicking it on. And that really, in some respects, poisoned the well for a long period of time in English football. There wasn't a huge amount of, wasn't a huge amount of uh, innovation. And really, in the 60s, you, you had a you know, with the success of Nicholson, the success of Shankly or Revy, and, you know, some changes in the FA, which, you know, with Alf Ramsey leading into the 66 World Cup, where the, the coaching courses were changed a bit. And it was more to do with shape, to do with match structures, you know, and how the role of the individual deals within the collective. And a lot of the coaches that came out of those first sort of two or three graduation graduate classes you had Bobby Robson who ended up managing you know Porto managed Barcelona took England to the Italian 19 World Cup semi-final had success at you know, Ipswich had took them into Europe won in trophies in Europe and you know did well at Newcastle United and then you had you know Roy Hodgson who then had all this, this, this success out in Sweden and really is, you know he's been in a football management for 43 years that's an incredible achievement but the thing is if you look at how how Roy Hodgson sets up a football team it is obsession with shape match situations and the role of the individual in the collection collective that's Roy Hodgson now it doesn't feel as if the period of time he spent at Inter Milan which was again uh, very much a situation that is the common theme and motif of Roy Hodgson's career is he comes in and stabilizes. He doesn't particularly stay long outside of his sort of heyday in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s in Sweden. He doesn't stay particularly long. Really, the last job that he has stayed for any period of time has been Palace. And I think a part of the reason behind that is is that realistically, it's his last job. He's in his you know, he's about seventy three now. So if he you know left two years ago, there was no guarantee that anybody else would take him on. And that's the thing. There's an element of wanderlust. There's always a different role. So you're looking in terms of his legacy that he has this foundational legacy in Sweden. You know he's you know, but other than that. You know, he he won a, a league title in Denmark. And there's not much else. He went to a you know, finished third in Serie A with Inter Milan, took them to a UEFA Cup final, but lost, you know, they were overwhelming favourites against Schalke. if you look at the, the teams in that final. You know, the Inter Milan team has some fantastic players. You're talking about Aaron Winter, Yuri Jorkayev, Javier Zanetti. There, you know, Paul Ince. There was a huge amount of talent. You know, Gianluca was A huge amount of talent, and the fact is, is that in the early nineties, Inter Milan have won a couple of UEFA Cups. After you know, Roy Hodgson leaves, they win a couple of. They win more UEFA Cups. They finish second. It, it's a solid job, but it's not. It's not earth shattering. Know, Sven if you compare him with Sven-Jöran Eriksson who came out in the 80s in Sweden and there's this fat l- brilliant um very peevish comment that um Roy Hodgson makes about um Sven-Jöran Eriksson and um it's only when Sven appeared in the 80s with Gothenburg that all of a sudden it was possible to talk of a Swedish style in actual fact I don't know what Eriksson did to Swedify the game except copying everything we'd done and <laughs> it's like okay and the thing is, if you if you take Sven-Jürgen Eriksson's career, he wins the Serie A for Lazio, which is an incredible achievement, and manages the England national team, takes them to three quarterfinals. And Sven was, was closer than it was too far. There was a couple of penalty shootout defeats, a narrow defeat to Brazil in the quarterfinals. There were limitations to his process. But if you compare Sven-Jürgen Eriksson's England career with management career, with Roy Hodgson's managerial career, Sven, hands down. It's, you know, what's Roy Hodgson's legacy in English football? And it's rote competence. You know, it's either survival, in other words, mid-table, somewhere between 13th to 11th, if he has a particularly decent team, you know, it's, seventh and qualifying for the UEFA Cup. He qualifies for the UEFA Cup with Blackburn, he qualifies for the UEFA Cup with Fulham. And that's great achievement. But the thing is money had been spent by Fulham through Mohamed al-Fayed pumping in money. You know, Blackburn had spent huge amounts of money under Jack Walker and the team that that he, you know, had picked up, you know, was still very talented. It had been a couple of seasons previously, they'd won the, the Premier League title. You know, at Palace, money had been spent. You know, quite a bit of money on Teke you know, There would there had been investment made. I mean, probably West Brom is the one where they hadn't made a huge amount of investment. I mean, he was still also Liverpool manager. And that had been a Liverpool team that, a couple of seasons before. Had had success under, you know, Rafael Benitez. Yes, Liverpool at the time were struggling. There was their takeover. You know, the previous owners, you know, Hitt, Gillette and Hicks, who'd owned the Texas Rangers, had... Basically, run out of money and it was falling apart, but it was only a short period of time. By the time Roy Hodgson is sacked as Liverpool manager, the Fenway group are in charge, and we all see how much money the Fenway group has put into Liverpool and the success they've had. You know, firstly, with you know, to a lesser extent, under Henry Avoglis, at least least took them to a final and won something. Brendan Rodgers nearly won the league with them, and then you've had all the success with Jurgen Klopp. You know there is a an element of peevishness to Roy Hodgson. You, you know when he was unveiled as Liverpool manager, he refused to effectively pay tribute to Bill Shankly, and it's just the sort of thing. You know he he wasn't the consensus fan choice of Liverpool supporters. Yeah, you know, he was not overwhelmingly you know, popular upon taking this job. He didn't have the sort of political capital that you, to be able to do that kind of thing, to basically be that, I wouldn't say controversial, but to to needle, you know, Liverpool's traditions. And if you look at his signing, his outlook, he gave off the element of that it was managed decline that it, there was malaise that he was just basically there to you know, keep the keep the lights on to keep Liverpool just about running and that was never going to be successful with Liverpool fans they were never going to take that you, and if you look at the, the way how Brendan Rodgers managed them and the way how Kenny Dalglish managed them they managed Liverpool in a completely different way and as a result you know I think at the end, by the end of you know his time at Liverpool, yeah you know, he was absolutely fed up, and the fans were twice as fed up, you know um, yeah, you know, Roy Hodgson ball is not aesthetically beautiful, it is at times quite functional, there are lots of functional players, it doesn't seem to the best Roy Hodgson team wouldn't be the best harry redknapp team harry redknapp's team you know with you know portsmouth with west ham with spurs were far more enterprising far more interesting far easier to watch i mean if you look at you know one of roy hodgson's major kind of statements recently with the palace job is saying you know effectively almost like you know the tlc song don't go chasing waterfalls it's like look I have managed, you know, he's been there sort of four years now, and he, you know, stabilised them. You know, when he took on the job, they were in trouble. You know, the Frank de Boer era hadn't worked. And again, he stabilised, kept them up, and that's an achievement. But again, that's the same sort of qualities that we, you know, give to, you know, Sam Allardyce. And Sam Allardyce's period at Bolton is far more interesting than anything Roy Hodgson has ever done domestically. You know, Sam Allardyce took Bolton from... Barely being a you know Premier League club to fifth into Europe, you know created methodologies that lasted for several years. You know even you know Pardew has had you know success in getting to the quarterfinals of a European tournament, you know UEFA Cup with Newcastle. You know Roy Hodgson's record is not doesn't compare with Harry Redknapp's success level. You know he. Thrives on low expectations. You know he hasn't managed outside the top flight in England in thirty years, and that was his managerial role at Bristol City, which we discussed earlier. You know, rope competence is fine. Getting you know you Fulham to the UEFA Cup final is a great achievement, but that was a free hit. You know he wasn't going to take Fulham down. They weren't going to compete for the top six, top four. So yeah, it was a cup run. It's fantastic, but you know having a career with two that you know at the highest level is essentially getting sweden sorry getting switzerland into the second round of the world cup in 94 um getting losing to england losing to iceland for england getting knocked out of the world cup within the first week for england and you know keeping west brom and palace in the premier league it's not overwhelming it's an it's fine but it is more closer to league average than it is the the top end. You know, the idea of well, if you you know be careful what you wish for. If I leave Palace, and you start trying to kick on to the next level and trying to you know push on into you know trying to get into the top ten, the top half of the table, it will be just like what happened at Charlton when Alan Kurdi did a great job when he left. It started. You know the infrastructure started to crumble, the team fell apart, and then they've relegated and haven't been back since. But it's a road to nowhere. All it is, is, well, I can keep you in the Premier League and it's usually somewhere between 43 to 47 points. Well, that's fine, but it's you you can't sell that forever. You have to sell, you know, you have to push on. Yeah, and that's why when I talk about his legacy, he never stayed long. there. You know, at least with Sam Allardyce, you have the Bolton years where there is a concrete achievement whereby rope competence and keeping, you know, Fulham, West Brom, Blackburn, you know, all of those teams then got relegated. The point is, is that there were Liverpool managers with a similar squad to, you know, Roy Hodgson had, who pushed Liverpool on further, who did more. You know, I I think the ultimate irony in Roy Hodgson losing to Iceland in in the Euros was that it was not just losing to Iceland... It was the fact that it was Lars Lagerbeck, who's, you know, for lots of years had been the co-manager of Sweden. And he lost to the system that he had broadly created. A well-drilled team that was based on set pieces and very systematised, you know, limited possession, sitting deep. He's lost to the system he created. How on earth could you, lo- you know lose in that situation when you have all the experience where you were the effectively the creator of that? You know, it was an England team that was a bit of a mess by the end. It was you know had Wayne Rooney in midfield. You know at one point Harry Kane was taking corners, and I I'd watched most of Harry Kane's games. You know as a season ticket holder at Spurs, and I had never seen him take a corner, even if he is a good corner taker. He was one of your prime per people who would head the ball in at a corner. It was just ridiculous. You know his. England managerial career the fact that he got three tournaments was to my mind functionally ridiculous i mean the best job that he did at england was when he first took on the job and england team was a bit of a mess there was the, the, the fallout from capello and he basically solidified the team got them playing in the roy Hodgson manner they got through the group stages had this you know quarter final against italy where for the first five five vaguely up to about the 10th minute England had a couple of opportunities, a couple of attacks, and you thought this could potentially be a bit of a, you know, a ding-dong, humdinger of a game. And then it just collapsed. England just basically stuck 10 men behind the ball and defended the flag heroically into the 120th minute, got to the penalty sheet at which point that was your great moment. I mean... England had been battered by Italy. They could have easily lost it in the 90. They could have lost it in extra time. The fact is, now, in this penalty shootout, you've got just as much chance as them of nicking it and outrageously getting through to the semi-final. And, you know, England and Joe Hart, in particular, kind of fell apart in the penalty shootout and were deservedly knocked out. But that was the height of, you know, is when he'd just done... Normal solidifying rote competence. When he was and um, with the England national team with the the talent he had available to him, that wasn't yeah. Why by it's acceptable for Switzerland in the early nineties. It is not acceptable with the talent that he had available to him. And the second he tried to step away from that and tried to kick on to the next level, it fell apart. They didn't particularly play well in the World Cup, and within literally six days of the tournament, they were out. And usually, after you know, sort of basically a period of two years, England weren't going anywhere. And yet, because he, you know, was, I suppose, was the candidate that the FA—he was an England manager that the FA saw in themselves—and so they decided to give him another couple of years. And it got even worse. I mean, you know, the, I remember the game against. Russia and we were winning 1-0, and just sat back the last 10 minutes and conceded a dozy equaliser. Yes, we beat Wales, but that was a classic Premier League game. That was basically all 22 players, for the most part, had spent vast majority of their careers in England. It wasn't the hottest day in the world, and they just played it like a Premier League game, which is exactly England's wheelhouse. And then against Slovakia, he dropped six of the players, and it was this kind of arrogance. The idea was, OK, what we'll do is... We'll drop some of these players. We'll rest them, and so that we're you know fresh for the later parts of the tournament. And they had this. It was a horrendous nil nil. I watched it in a uh, airport bar in New York City, about to fly home, and that just was. It was awful. It was nineteen minutes of soul sucking. It was terrible. You just couldn't wait for the game to end. And then you know, the idea was is that he had the opportunity to watch Iceland, you know, as a scouting trip you know in, during the tournament in france for the euros and he decides not to go because he wants to take ray lewington who had never been to Paris before on a pleasure cruise along the sign to show him the sights and then we lost to, to iceland and it's it was just it was patrician arrogance and that's you know in some ways why I've, I you know to my I always imagine him as Uncle Roy. There is that kind of I know better than you kind of attitude that I think sometimes pervades him. I think for the most part he is a fantastic person. He's you know he's you know well educated. He's you know intelligent. He definitely cares about his job, and I think for the most part he's a, a great person. But there is just an element of him that is careless in those sort of regards there's the andros townsend situation andros townsend was playing for england at half time and he, he makes this kind of joke that was a bit insensitive you you can look it up online but basically it was just the sort of thing he said Oh God, that's kind of what your uncle your older uncle who's just a little bit you know, past it would say you know there's it a touch of this sort of grammar school arrogance and if you look at some of the, you know, the the rote competence of his Premier League years, the sort of second half of his career in England, and you compare it with Harry Redknapp, and it's like, well, at Portsmouth, look, you know, did Portsmouth fans get value for money? Yes, they got the, the cup final win. They finished in the top half. They beat AC Milan in Europe at home. And yes, while there is a point that certain, you know, that, Portsmouth were spending beyond their means and that eventually there would be a payback yes but is it worth it and I think for the most part those Portsmouth fans would say that those five six seven years where they were in the Premier League were fantastic years yet they've had to spend a few years in the lower leagues but that's where they'd had been for an extended period of time before Harry turned up it's not Harry's fault that the ownership was a a little bit reckless I mean, if it wasn't Harry spending that money, it would have been somebody else. And, no, and the point is, I think Harry, relatively speaking, spent that money as well as could be. Took Portsmouth as far as you could do with a 19,000-seat stadium where there's no roof on one of the ends. And there's no way of developing it. Whereby, with Uncle Roy, he has this strong desire to remain in budget. And I think that's partly because of his experience you know, at Bristol City, in his first major role in England. But... As a result, what you end up being is is that you know he always allows him the benefit of low expectations. he always takes over clubs that are struggling, and yet there's not really so as a result, there's not really a long term legacy to build up. He doesn't take them on to the next level he just solidifies them in the the Roy Hodgson position, which is if you have a decent squad, seventh if not between eleventh and thirteenth forty three to forty seven points. I mean, there've been times when at Palace where he's kind of got to forty three points. It's March, and you think, okay, maybe this team can kick on. And really, it's an it's an Uncle Roy team, and the job's done. And they generally the players seem to lack energy, and because there's no, and he doesn't seem to be able to motivate them to kick on to that next level to get fifty points instead of forty five points, which then means the next year you could try and get fifty five points. It just it sort of peters out. You know, there's not really many cup runs. It just it is what it is. It's a means to an end. I mean, I think there's also an irony in the sense that even Uncle Roy thought Harry Renner was going to be the new England manager in 2012. And there is an underlying sense that Hodgson believed that the England job was a deserved just reward. And I'm not going to deny that to him, but I also don't think he did a particularly great job of it. And I think that the the nightmare in Nice and losing to Iceland was, was that was the result of a manager that had been in the job two years too long and who had had more opportunity than the average English manager and had you know, fundamentally underperformed, really. So, I suppose coming back to Harry Redknapp... I see him as a, a Gatsby-esque figure. While I've said that Roy Hodgson is as a, a careless person, I, I'm quoting F. F, F Scott Fitzgerald and the book The Great Gatsby. I, I see very much a situation where... Redknapp is Gatsby. And the skills that he needed to reach the top, that the... the, the be the salesman, the raconteur, the entertainer, the the East End del boy stereotype, the element of boosterism, the fact that in some respects of his own life he's a bit of an unreliable narrator. There's there's bravado, there's a single mindedness. You know, somebody some people have quoted it as sharp elbows, but he also had the imagination and ambition, you know, to turn his humble beginnings, you know, and these skills. And achievements what the FA have found broadly distasteful so he to me he is a Gatsby's figure you know he's basically on West Egg trying desperately to get the England manager's job whereby Uncle Roy is on East Egg he is very much someone who believes that the England job was as I've said a just reward for his you know, achievement for the totality of his achievements and you know he gets handed the job. He gets given three bites of the cherry, which very few international managers do. If if you have a record of being knocked out in the group stages, and you've got to a quarterfinal in one of those tournaments, and things got sort of worse and worse, the uh, the further it carried on to the the nightmare against Iceland, whereby Harry Redknapp, if you look at it, he played with World Cup winners during his career. You know, Jeff Hurst. Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, Red you know, Renat was managed by an England manager in Ron Greenwood. Knapp bought through numerous England internationals. He almost brought through a generation of great England players. You know, you had Michael Carrick, you had Rio Ferdinand, Joe Cole, Frank Lampard. You know, several Spurs players played for England: Ledley King, Michael Dawson, Aaron Lennon. But he was denied the ultimate accolade, you know, a symbol of his life's journey and works. Yeah, and in some ways in again like Gatsby, you know, the moment probably passed before he even knew it. You know, as I said, it maybe resigned from Spurs. The FA would have given him, but there's no guarantees. The FA didn't want to give him the job. You know, Radnatt was unable to separate or divorce himself from the East End in the way Terry Venables was able to. Terry Venables was able to say, "Well, I'm the product of Chelsea, the product of Tottenham." And you know, the opportunities for him to then just sort of almost seamlessly go from Palace to QPR to Barcelona and beyond. Whereby Harry Redknapp was always sort of struggling. It was always Oxford United. Bournemouth, assistant manager, assistant manager. West Ham, Portsmouth. Only gets really given the Spurs job when somebody else, a foreign manager, had completely bollocked it up. And then he does this great job does this fantastic job. Takes Spurs all the way to, to areas where people... Hand, when Harry Wendt took the job, if you said in two or three years they'll be in the Champions League in a you know quarter final, having beaten Inter Milan and AC Milan and playing in the Bernabeu against Real Madrid, you'd have just thought, well, he might take Tottenham in the top ten, he might keep them from relegation. Is he going to take them to that next level? Does he have that ability? It turned out he did. And yet, it's Hodgson who... You know, has not had that level of success. Hadn't had that level of recent success. He was far more... Far more prosaic in terms of the football that he played. And and that's the thing. Redknapp, you know, had outperformed England managers. He'd finished above Sam Allardyce. He'd finished above Sven. He'd beaten Roy Hodgson, Dan Hoddle, Terry Venables when he was at Leeds. He had you know, more than in some ways proved himself capable of doing that job. You know, Harry Redna, you know, bought joy to the Premier League, you know, for Spurs, for Portsmouth, for West Ham. These fans will never forget the the great football, but even more than that, the the greater belief that improvement was always possible. I mean his life and times is a testament to where an East End boy can go with the British dream. But there's also the element of its cruel, invisible glass ceilings. The point is, is that he does not only does he not get the England manager's job, you know, the whole element of all the, the surrounding noise all of for that period of time, he really did you know, and also the trial. He just lost focus on the job. And you know, it's Tottenham instead of finishing third, dropped off a little bit and finished fourth. Now usually ninety-nine times out of hundred you finish fourth, you're in the Champions League, great job, probably carries on for another season. Instead, not only does he not finish above Arsenal, Chelsea finished sixth, win the Champions League, and that knocks you not just out, you know, you out of the Champions League. And the thing is, is that, you know, if he'd finished third, that would have been the highest finish, you know, for Tottenham in the Premier League history. The first time they finished above mm-hmm. Arsenal in the Wenger years. And it's really just a couple of points. And, you know, had Fabio Capello kept the England manager job for a couple more months, I think Spurs would have been focused enough to have finished third. And then he would have probably carried on, at least for another season. But at that point... You know, with the furore of the trial. I mean, literally, he was on trial and managing Spurs at the same time. And then you'd had the England, which everyone knew he wanted, but he hadn't resigned. And then was sort of saying, well, actually, I, I want an, a new contract. And you know, Harry and Daniel Levy was, by this point, pretty much sick of him. And used that as a... And, fin- and missing out on the Champions League as a precursor to firing him and that was really the end of his career yeah he goes to Birmingham he manages Jordan for a couple of games even is at one point a uh, an advisor to you know Newcastle Jets in the Australian League but it it peters out that was you know the England job was going to be the highlight of his career and probably one of the last jobs he would have ever taken and it's gone and he never gets given another big job and, you know, he's now retired. And I think if you ask the question, who brought more joy to the English Premier League, a Harry Redknapp team or an Uncle Roy team, I would hands down say that Harry Redknapp. I think the jobs he did in terms of getting West Ham to where they were, where they finished fifth, still their highest ever finish in the Premier League, in terms of winning a trophy for Portsmouth, taking them into Europe, the quality of football and the quality of football that he got for them, and also what he did at Tottenham, I think far outstrips Roy Hodgson's, I think, major club career. I, the point is, is that you can't fully compare in the sense that Roy Hodgson's period in Sweden... ...is fantastic. You can't take that away from him. You can't take away the success he had for Switzerland. You can't necessarily take away the fact that he was a manager of Inter Milan. From being a PE teacher in a grammar school to that is ...is an amazing achievement. But... ...I'd say that the, the doors that were opened for... ...Roy Hodgson... ...were never opened for Harry Redknapp. And that the opportunities that Roy Hodgson was given were always in a an advantageous position. There was never a time when Roy Hodgson took on a job outside of really the Liverpool job, but even then, where there was going to be reputational damage. If West Brom went down, if Palace went down, there wasn't even you know some of the struggles Blackburn, you know, came down in his second season. There was never a huge amount of damage to Roy Hodgson. For all of the land, the landmines that were at Liverpool, it was still an opportunity to manage Liverpool, which is always a fantastic option, you know, for any English manager. You know, the potentiality there is just so huge if you get the job right. And he got it completely and utterly wrong. And if you compare it to the job that Harry Renap did at Spurs, he did a much better job. I mean Uncle Roy is really a testament to a different but no less powerful British dream. That with the education that England can offer, a bright, ambitious Englishman, you know, who earned it, you know, and from his humble beginnings, could lead him all over the world, and to truly make a difference in his chosen vocation. You know, that the lessons that he learned and perfected in the FA coaching course over 40 years ago are still achieving results now for the team him and his dad first went to, is touching. You know, yeah, while his career lacks the peaks of Redknapp, his longevity and consistency is unlikely to be ever replicated again. You know, not across so many different countries, not across both international and club level. That level of consistency of achievement is something. It's nothing to be sneered at. You know, They are both fantastic managers, And they are both a, and both deservedly have the accolade of being local boy maker. They are the pride of their areas and they definitely deserve that. However, for me, when I think about this, all I can keep coming back to is the idea that there was two young boys, both grew up in London, similar parts, you know, it's not a huge difference between, you know, Croyd some parts of Croydon and some bits of the East End, but that the defining moment where one became a future England manager and one who wasn't going to be England manager appears to have been the moment that they both stepped into that classroom in the late fifties to do their eleven plus exam. Is that Roy Hodgson did well in his eleven plus and that opened up the door to grammar school and to the confidence that would allow him to basically traverse the world and to go from being a PE teacher to being, you know, Inter Milan manager, to become England manager. You know, without the benefit of a professional career and to have the, you know, a a professional, a meaningful professional football career, but he had the contacts, the confidence, the that allowed him to enrol on these FA courses, to be accepted, to have the reputation and to, you know, know people that would put him in a position that allowed him to go as far as his, you know, God-given gifts allowed. Whereby, for for Harry Redknapp, you're always going to have the fact that no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much success he got in his career as a football manager he the closest he ever got to becoming england manager was was taking a bunch of mid 40s ex pros to germany to play german ex pros for an itv television series and that's a tragedy in many respects thank you for listening